sermon text this morning is um, the Tenth Commandment, which is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Where we find these words, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Tenth Commandment is a unique commandment out of all of the Ten Commandments. It has nothing to do with external actions, while all of the other commandments do. Uh, If you consider the other nine commandments, the sins of idolatry and false worship, the sin of taking God's name in vain, the sin of failing to observe the Sabbath day, we think of the requirement to honor our fathers and mothers, to not kill, not commit adultery, not steal, not, not bear false witness. All of these commandments have a focus upon our outward life. What I mean is that they do not directly point the finger at our inner life like the Tenth Commandment does. The Tenth Commandment, in condemning covetousness, is condemning a sin, recognize this, that it has entirely to do with our thoughts, it has entirely to do with our desires, our will, our hearts. And uh, what I am saying is in no way a denial of the truth that all of the first nine commandments also demand obedience of the heart. And that perspective ought to be evident from how I've been preaching the other commandments. Always I have been emphasizing that all of the commandments require more than mere external obedience. And yet one would not know this by just reading the commandments themselves. For example, the commandment to not steal, that is all it says, do not steal. Notice that the commandment itself says nothing about contentment, and yet in explaining the scope of that commandment's requirements, I talked about how we must not have greed in our hearts. It's perfectly appropriate to ask why I explain the commandment that way. We, the question might perhaps be asked, shouldn't we take the commandments in a literal, straightforward way? So how can I justify explaining this and the other commandments as touching the inner life of our heart when the commandments themselves read like God is only concerned about outward obedience? Those questions could be answered in a number of ways, but one particular way to answer it is to take note of the 10th commandment. For this commandment changes everything. The addition of the Tenth Commandment is the main reason why we know that all of the commandments concern the heart and not just what we do on the outside. The New Testament in a number of ways confirms the truth that all of God's commandments have always required heart obedience. And yet with only the Tenth Commandment, think of it, the the people of God in the Old Testament had only, with just that, they had enough teaching to know that God required obedience of the heart, which is one of the reasons why the Pharisees, with only the Old Testament as their guide, were without excuse for their misuse of the law. Bringing up the religious leaders and the Pharisees in particular, I point out that the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day. 
who are widely acknowledged to be experts in the law, experts in knowing what it required. They were considered to be experts themselves in keeping the law of God, so that if you were an average Jew living in Jesus' day and you wanted to know what God required of you according to his law, you would probably turn to the example of the Pharisees. And you would hope that you could be even close to as righteous as as they are. And uh, what characterized their view of the law's requirement, though, is a complete focus on external, visible actions, visible deeds. And by understanding the law this way, they could claim that they have mastered the law. And uh, when Jesus came, he contradicted the views of the religious leaders, the views of the Pharisees. Remember how he compared the Pharisees to cups which have been washed on the outside but inside are filthy. In a similar way, he said that they were like graves that had been whitewashed, who were all white and clean on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. And what was his point in all of that? His point was that their understanding of the law was wrong. The law does have to do with the inside. It has to do with your heart. It has to do with your thoughts, your desires, your motives. Paul was a Pharisee who for many years believed like the Pharisees did, that he was keeping the whole law of God. But Paul came to understand the truth, and what was instrumental in his change of thinking was the Tenth Commandment. Before we get to that, notice what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and following. If you have your Bibles open, you might want to look at Philippians 3, verses 4 and following. The apostle there says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul is saying that in the eyes of his countrymen, he's, of course, talking about in the past, he was considered to be blameless in his keeping of God's law. For a while he had that, that, that assessment of himself. He thought he was perfect before the law of God. He didn't think he was guilty of adultery or murder or stealing, etc., because he thought the law was only about outward visible actions. There may be someone here who... Following the same standard, maybe you likewise consider yourself blameless before the law of God. As you look at the Ten Commandments, you think, I haven't broken any of these. Most of you probably have never bowed down to an idol. You have perhaps never sworn using God's name. You've regularly attended church. You've never murdered anyone, etc. But what Paul talks about in Romans 7 is how the Tenth Commandment, the commandment we're considering this morning, is what God used to show him that he wasn't blameless after all. He says there, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. This particular commandment destroys the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees, and this commandment did so for Paul personally as the Holy Spirit confronted him with this commandment. This commandment has to do with inward desire only. It's a law governing our thoughts. 
And who can say they have never had a covetous thought? This means that the Pharisees, in order to justify themselves, must have systematically ignored this commandment. It's the only way that they could have insisted on being keepers of the law. And not only did they ignore this commandment, they then went on to ignore the implications for how this commandment has us to understand all of the commandments. For as soon as you realize that God is concerned about covetousness, then you realize that he is concerned about something that is related to all of the other sins that he condemns. Since God condemns covetousness, notice, he forbids not only the act of stealing, but even the desire for what your neighbor has. Because covetousness is about that desire for what he has. Since God forbids covetousness, he condemns not only the act of adultery, but the desire for your neighbor's wife. Since God forbids covetousness, he requires us to never let a desire for anything earthly take away from our desire for him. Desiring the things of the world, covetousness, is really the root of all idolatry, which is why the Bible even says in Colossians 3.5 that covetousness is idolatry. So I'm showing you that the Tenth Commandment is related to all of the other commandments. And because of this final commandment, we suddenly know that all of the commandments have to do not only with actions, but also with our heart's desires. And furthermore, since our heart desires are directly related to what or whom we love, the Tenth Commandment also reveals to us that love is at the very heart of all of God's commandments. And of course, this this supports the teaching that has been emphasized throughout this sermon series on the Ten Commandments that the entire law is ultimately about love. That's what scripture itself tells us. It's about loving God, first of all, and then your neighbor for his sake. Well, this morning I would have us to look even closer at the meaning of this Tenth Commandment and the implication of it for our lives. We're going to consider the meaning of covetousness and then the reason why, secondly, why we are given this commandment. First of all, I'd point out that this command of God comes to us, do not covet your neighbors, and then various possessions of the neighbor are listed. And uh, in order that we might obey this 10th commandment of God, we need to know what it is exactly that God is forbidding. And I would begin by saying that it's not necessarily wrong to covet. Now, hear me out on this. Uh, What I mean by that is to covet, if we just look at the, the basic meaning of that word, means to desire. It means to long for anything with eagerness. It means to wish for the possession of something And simply to desire things can't be wrong because God has made us to desire many things as part of how he has made us. And so it's natural that we would covet such things as food and drink and clothing and shelter and for some a spouse. And we also know that coveting is not in and of itself wrong because scripture calls us to covet certain things. Scripture is abundantly clear that you are to desire or to covet, if you will, such things as righteousness, such things as the progress of God's kingdom. You are to desire greater faith and love uh, toward God and, and his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to covet a closer relationship with God. For example, Paul told the Corinthians to desire or to covet earnestly the best gifts, talking to them about spiritual gifts. 
They are to desire those gifts. And the best ones. And 1 Timothy 3.1 is perfectly capable of being translated this way. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he covets a good work. And yet two verses later, we are told that the potential bishop or elder must not be covetous. So which is it? Well, the solution to this difficulty is to understand that when Scripture condemns covetousness, it's condemning a very specific form of coveting or desiring. There's a kind of coveting which is good, a kind of coveting which is sinful, and the Tenth Commandment is, uh, is obviously condemning desires which have fallen under the influence of our sinful nature, our nature which is in rebellion against God. And so really, apart from, um, from sin, apart from our sinful nature, all of our coveting would be good because we would be coveting things we need uh, that God has created us to covet. We would also be, be coveting to know God and our desires would be always going after him and the things of his kingdom always. That's the way it would be apart from our sinfulness. And uh, it's to this sin... Sinless coveting, which is, um, it is the sin, sinless coveting, which is often found being expressed in the Psalms, where, for example, we find in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And yet, of course, Scripture tells us um, that there is a sin there is the sin of covetousness because our hearts, our minds, our wills, and thus our desires have become corrupt. And as far as God is concerned, this, this sin is no small matter. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, and notice, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Covetousness arises when we are not content with God. We're not content with what he has given us. And out of this dissatisfaction arises greed, where we yearn for this thing and for that thing. And so in some covetousness is when you desire possessions apart from God and especially against his will. It occurs whenever there is something of this world that God has not given you because evidently he doesn't want you to have it, but you want it anyway. Always it involves longing for material things for their, for their own sakes and not in relation to things spiritual. And so greed, this, this greed or this covetousness flows from hearts that are set not on things above, but on things below. And it may be surprising to some of you, but covetousness has nothing to do with your station in life. Covetousness is just as likely to be a problem for the rich as it is for the poor. For contentment, which is the opposite of covetousness, is never attained through owning an abundance of material possessions. The poor want to be rich, and the rich want to be richer. It seems that there is no end to the things that we will covet. And that's why God's commandment says that we are not to covet anything, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Some examples are given here in the wording of the 10th commandment, your neighbor's house, his wife, his servants, his livestock, 
Whenever you notice the standard of living that others have, notice that it's above your standard. It's easy to set your heart on having what they have. And it's this sinful longing that accounts for so many other sins, the sins of envy and jealousy. Uh, it accounts for quarreling and fighting, as James points out, that, that all fighting and quarreling has to do with the desires of your hearts that, that, that you feel are unfulfilled. Um, covetousness is involved in adultery and all forms of hatred without covetousness there would be no wars there would be no fighting among individuals and what's perhaps not always understood but what needs to be understood is that covetousness doesn't have primarily even to do with your neighbor your relationship with your neighbor but with God Again, I, I referred you to earlier to Colossians 3.5 where it says that covetousness is idolatry. And you might wonder, well, how can that be? How, how does that work? Well, it's because covetousness always begins with a heart not satisfied with God. When, we, when we're covetous, our hearts are going after the things of this world, which implies we don't love God like we should Remember, Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if your treasure is some material possession, which is what happens when you sinfully covet something, then that thing has become the object of your affection. And thus, for all practical purposes, that thing that you covet has become the God that you love. And so you can begin to see that covetousness is a sin of the heart that really has to do with putting God... Um, that, that's, that has to do with God not being first um, and, and, and the neighbor, the, 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 the relationship to your neighbor is really secondary as part of the problem of the sin of covetousness. Now that you understand better what it is to covet and what God wants instead, it's important also that you understand more specifically why God gives us this commandment. And there are several several important reasons. First of all, we need this commandment because of this tendency we have to focus on external actions and to ignore the heart. All of us by nature are little Pharisees and we want to justify ourselves before God. And our desire is to be able to read God's law and to feel good about ourselves, um, which is why it happened among the Jews and why it happens today that people explain God's law in a way that makes it possible for us to meet its requirements. We round off the sharp edges. We change the meaning of words. We give heed to certain commandments and ignore others. We convince ourselves that we are good enough to keep the commandments and therefore the requirements of the law are not outside of our reach. Well, the 10th commandment is given to us by God to jolt us back into reality. The reality is that we do not keep God's law. It reminds us that God looks at the heart, that he judges us according to our hearts. Mark 7.20 tells us that what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, adds those words, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You must have a righteousness that is beyond just an external righteousness. And so what Jesus is saying, that God's law requires more than outward obedience. 
We are to be perfect in every way, inside and out, as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's the level of righteousness required for you to be in heaven with your holy God. And that is a righteousness that you can never achieve on your own. It's a righteousness that can only be given to us by God, through Jesus, by grace alone. And so this commandment jolts us back to the reality that the law is about more than just deeds. It's more than just about external actions. It's about the heart. And that's really where the battle for sin takes place. And then second, this commandment shows us that the law is a unity. And uh, this must be true if, as Scripture says, to break the tenth commandment is to break the first commandment and commit idolatry. The tenth commandment unites all of the commandments together by showing us that God is concerned about the desires, the attitudes, the thoughts, the affections that lie behind what we do. When we begin to have sinful desires, we've already demonstrated that we do not love God and the neighbor like we should. And yet love is exactly what, God's, what, what God requires, uh, what he requires for obedience to his law. He has summarized his, his law, his entire law, by saying you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as soon as you covet, you break God's entire law, understood as a law of love. As we conclude this morning, you ought to be thankful for this commandment. Yes, it's humbling. Yes, it pulls out the rug from under, uh, from under us if we have any sense of our own righteousness, but you should be thankful for what this commandment is all about because uh, you should be thankful for what it did, um, that what it did for the Apostle Paul, it's also done for you in showing you how hopeless it is to trust in your own righteousness. And that's a good thing because then you are ready to receive the, the righteousness of Christ. All of us should be thankful that the Lord would reveal to us our sinfulness because then you and I know our sinfulness, know that we cannot save ourselves, and we by faith seek refuge in Christ and are saved. You must seek refuge in Christ as your sin bearer. You must seek refuge in him as your substitute. That's why he died. That's what he was doing as he died. He was bearing the condemnation that you deserve to bear as breakers of God's law. Understand as well that he kept the law of God perfectly in your place. He was able to do what you are not able to do, and in that way to earn the rewards of the law that is promised to those who are perfectly obedient. And as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, let us remember this sacrifice, the death of our Savior in our place, meeting the demands of God's justice, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve, for the sins of not just our, our deeds, of our, of our bodies, but also of our hearts, our desires, our perverted. But let us also rejoice in the new desires that he has given us by his grace. Do you not have a desire to please him? Do you not have a desire to serve him because you're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, thankful for the salvation that you have, that even though you cannot save yourself, a savior has been provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of a change of heart that has been granted to you by grace, you recognize Jesus to be your wonderful Savior. He is precious to you, and so you recognize 
that he is uh, that he is, is the one that you are to trust. He is the one that you are to live for. Think of it. He is removing sinful covetousness from you. He forgives your perverted desires that you have for the things of this world. And he's begun to give you a delight in him. Hope these things are true of you, that you can see, yeah, your, de- your delights, your desires, they're not perfect. But do you have a desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ out of thankfulness? Do you love him? Are you thankful for his death in your place? And as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, may the Lord use us as a means of grace that we would value Christ in our relationship with him all the more. May it be that the Lord would use the gospel as, as it's presented in a visible form to give you a greater love for him. As you reflect upon his sacrificial love, granting you salvation, a salvation that you do not deserve. May you find your love for him growing and growing and growing as you reflect upon all that he has done for you. May you appreciate his love. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has made provision for our sin when we were able to do nothing to save ourselves. Um, Father, we are humbled by the Tenth Commandment as it shows us that really all of the sin uh, that we commit at the beginning of it is a problem with our hearts, has to do with wrong desires. So, Father, the problem, our our sin problem is much worse than than uh, we typically imagine at first. Um, Father, it's not just deeds. It's, it's our hearts. It's, it's our thoughts. It's our motives. Father, uh, forgive us, we pray, for the sake of Christ. Um, we're thankful, Father, that the righteousness that you grant us in Christ is a, is a complete righteousness. And uh, we, Lord, look forward to that day when we will no longer struggle with sinful desires. We're thankful, Father, that we can see evidence of your work in us and giving us desires that please you. Um, and yet it grieves us that we can also see desires that don't please you. There's this, this spiritual warfare that goes on within us. Father, we look forward to that day when our desires will be single and uh, we will desire you alone. Um, Father, um, we pray that in the meantime you would encourage us through the gospel that we are forgiven that we are yours, that this, uh, this, this future sanctification is ours, and uh, that in the meantime we can enjoy our justification, we can enjoy this journey where we are growing in sanctification, all as reminders of the fact that we do belong to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.